Elite Physique University, your source for all things physique enhancement. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Elite Physique University. I'm John Gorman, your host. We've got Jason Theobald and Dr. Scott Stevenson back in the house. This is a continuation of the Q&A, really based around Scott's book, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. And guys, we're just going to jump right back in and uh, knock this out. So if you're new and this is your first time listening to the podcast, go back and listen to part one. We really cover a lot of good topics, metabolic flexibility, GDAs, insulin sensitivity, fats for fuel. I mean, fuck, we went down a lot of rabbit holes. So uh, part of that was my fault. So we made this a two-parter and we're going to jump right back I think in. It's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you're the guest. I'm trying to right, be okay. nice here. So. All right, it's my fault. <laughs> no, I'll just take kidding. the blame. Um, if you're following along and you do have Scott's book, if, if you don't have it, it's in the show notes. Just click on that and you can purchase it. Uh, highly recommend it. If you're following along, pages 219 and 165 kind of cover this next topic in question. Scott, this is fun. This is interesting. Um, what are your thoughts on essential amino acids, EAAs, as opposed to BCAs during training? And then we've got a whole host of questions that, that kind of come after that. So what are your thoughts on on the two during training? And is one more beneficial than the other? So this is it's an interesting thing. Uh, I'll give you a, I'll take a step back and try to wax poetic here a little bit. Not too much, I promise. But bodybuilding is like, we're, we're trying to, it's a hack, basically. It's a, kind of the modern right. term. We're trying to hack, our, we're, we're creating a muscular callus by repeatedly lifting things up, putting them back down again, over and over and over again. So that's what supplements do. Like we take, we take things, we try to like tap in to the molecular mechanisms, the biology that's already there and kind of re-engineer it in some way, shape, or, or manipulate it to our will. And essential amino acids, <clears throat> or branch chain amino acids are there or way for us to kind of do that um, because you would never find there are no, as far as I know, sources of branch chain amino acids that you would find in nature. Um, humans are, are manufacturing these. They're, they're, they're produced, you know, as a supplement itself. And even essential amino acids, we only know that those are the essential amino acids originally through the studies where they eliminated those and they looked at the adverse health effects. So, what you can, this is kind of important, I guess, to give us some context. Most listeners probably know this, but the essential amino acids are the ones that your body can't produce. Um, so they have to be consumed in your diet. And the cool thing about that, it makes perfect sense, of course, is that the essential amino acids actually, except for valine and isoleucine, but you're on your second one, you're cranking, man. I would not be able to sleep if I drank two monsters this late in the day. Our podcast listeners are like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Yeah, that's my second one. I've saved them all day. I'm going to train right after this. Oh, so. oh okay. All right. There you go. Right on. <laughs> I won't keep you too long. So actually, interesting, there's a, one re- piece of research study that sh- showed that uh, valine and isoleucine, along with leucine, those are the uh, branching amino acids. Those don't have much of an effect on turning on that protein synthetic machinery. Um, and I'll get back to that in just a second. But Leucine and the other essential amino acids, those turn on protein synthesis. So I always sort of liken this to a, um, a construction job where you have to have X amount of different kinds of materials, your two by fours, your logs, you know, piece, you know angle iron, whatever it might be that you're going to use to build things. And you really can't start building until you have those essential pieces in place. And the essential, when the, when the two by fours and the screws and the nuts and the et cetera, et cetera, arrives on the construction site, then you can get to going. And that's actually what happens on a molecular biological level in the cell. 
they turn on those translation initiation factors to get things going to start producing protein chains and build muscle. <clears throat> so you can sort of trick the system, hack the system to some degree by just kind of showing up with the important pieces, but it's not a complete hack. Um, what has been shown in some, in some research studies is that you can give a small amount, like six grams of just the essential amino acids during or just post resistance exercise and increase or potentiate the post exercise protein synthetic effect, which is cool. It makes sense. You're showing up with the important goods that the cell is used to seeing, but actually some follow-up research by some of the same researchers from, um, uh, what's his name? Churchward, Churchward Ben and Bill, uh, blanking on his name right now. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed because these, these, the pre protein researcher have demonstrated that actually you can run out of the non-essential amino acids. You have to have everything there. It may be an easy thing to get, um, you know, some of the materials for your building construction, the non-essential amino acids. But if you don't have those, they're, they're, they can be essential in that sense as well, even though your body would normally have those because you can only run your protein synthetic machinery until you're out of all the things that you need. Right. This is where this, this, this spec we talked about previously in the last, in the last podcast was, or the first half of this podcast. So the essential amino acids are hack. And the branch chain amino acids are important. And this is, this is totally valid research. It's been out there for a while. But during endurance exercise, for instance, those branch chain amino acids, because of their structure, make a good source for gluconeogenesis. They get oxidized preferentially during exercise. So those are the ones you'll sort of run out of. You're looking to see which amino acids tend to be taken out of skeletal muscle in stressful situations and oxidized and used as fuel in the cell or used for gluconeogenic precursor, it's the branch chain amino acids. So that's why it's like, this is a good thing to, to give, just to replace those losses, of course. There's actually some cool studies showing that BCAAs will remedy muscle soreness too, mm -hmm. which is good stuff. <clears throat> but again, we're, we, we can be sometimes a little too smart for our own good. If you just infuse branch chain amino acids, you're infusing leucine, but those other two, without the other essential amino acids, you can actually trigger what would normally be an okay situation to have increased protein oxidation because you've got increased amino acids coming in, but you're not, you're not bringing them all in. You're ushering in sort of a, a Trojan horse of sources that says, we've got plenty of protein coming in, leucine's here. We need to balance the protein synthetic effect brought on by the leucine with protein oxidation. And what you see then when you try to trick with just the branch chain amino acids, that you end up having more protein oxidation than you do anabolism. And you end up with a negative protein balance, which is not what you want. So that's not a good call to just do branch chain amino acids. There's actually, I don't think there are any studies showing a pure overall balanced protein synthetic effect, anabolic effect from chest BCAAs. There's just those effects on reducing the BCAA losses, the oxidation or reducing muscle soreness. So BCAs are not a good choice, in my opinion. Yeah. Some people swear up. The placebo is a powerful effect too. So yeah, it is. You know, <laughs> if if it works for you, keep doing it, man. Like just you know, that's totally fine by me. And and the next the <laughs> next thing that kind of comes up and get your thoughts on this, I have a lot of people ask me, um, and and I've seen this all over. Well, shit, I saw this on boards back in the day. Uh, intense muscle. I remember people asking this question, and no one really knew. Could you just take? EAAs, enough EAAs, um, like a nice full serving versus whey protein and still get the same effect. 
and I know our listeners want to hear your thoughts on that. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on, you know, just taking AAs or whey protein? Maybe if you're in just a pinch, what's, what's the, th- what's the thoughts there? Couple, couple thoughts. One, I, I sort of alluded to this in that church word then study. So what they did, this is a, you know, these are isolated studies, but what eventually you can happen, you can turn on the protein synthesis. And then if you aren't providing those non-essential amino acids, so you've got elevated levels of essential amino acids that are, that are sending the signal, turn on protein synthesis, but you don't have the other components that are still needed, you, you'll, end up, you'll end up running out of the non-essential amino acids. So, so let's say you, you, non-essential amino acids are ones your, bodies can, your body can produce. So you've got all this body protein, all the skeletal muscle, the organs, all the sources of protein that can be metabolized, sort of going into sort of a temporary amino acid protein pool and that's where you would draw from, let's say, if you brought in essential amino acids from a supplement, and then the non-essentials, all of which are going to be needed to produce the muscle protein that you're trying to grow. Right. But, but, but you're borrowing those pro- amino acids from yourself. They're coming from you if you're not eating a complete protein source. Right. So you're turning on the protein synthetic machinery with the essential amino acids. That's great. It's like, you know, you're starting the car up but you don't have the tires. You still need the tires to drive. Everything's still spinning, but you know, so you, you can't, you'll, you have to have a full protein source eventually because the idea is not just some, in some local fashion and just turn on protein synthesis and maybe even, even grow muscle there. You want to accrue total muscle protein in the whole yeah. body all told. So you just, you have to have all the pieces of the puzzle. It's just the essentials are, seem, are seemingly more important because you won't stimulate the process unto itself. There's yeah. actually some interesting literature where what they use a compensatory hypertrophy model where they will take like the soleus in a rat and they'll cut the soleus and then the rat will recover and walk around and you'll see compensatory hypertrophy in the gastroc or the other way around. Rats have a large plantaris too. So look at that one. So the muscles that are left over will co- compensate. You can, act, it's such a strong stimulus for muscle growth. You can make that happen when their animals are eating nothing. They can starve them for two weeks. That muscle will still grow. Now, that muscle grew because it had that local driving stimulus to do that, the compensatory stimulus for the growth. But they didn't gain muscle protein out of thin air. They borrowed from the other, other body protein that was there. So you still have to bring in a complete protein source. So it's really, it kind of always, I mean, I thought about this a lot, but it always kind of baffled me to think that you can somehow magically produce the non-essential amino acids just by giving the uh, essential ones, imagine you went two weeks and ate none of the non-essential amino acids, only essential amino acids. Well, you get those non-essentials. You want to build any new protein. You still need all of those, all right. those ingredients. You need the full complement. So it just wouldn't work eventually. Yeah. So, so and here's another question for you. We're going to kind of get into intra-workout since most people are going to take amino acids during their training, um, you know, considering proteins high enough. What's kind of your, you kind of alluded to it in the first part. You talked about your 2000 calorie intra workout shakes. Right. Um, these days, what have you felt? And I know this is real hard because everyone's different. Like you said in the last podcast, everyone's a snowflake. We're all different. <laughs> Give us an idea of, of what you believe is like the best setup for an intra workout shake, you know, carbohydrate source, um, amounts that you like to see in general for most men and women. If, if you can do that, Jason, and I've talked about that a lot, but 
you've done this so much over the years, what would be your ideal setup starting with, with aminos? So would you start with uh, EAAs then and ditch the BCAAs? It's, it's, it's so contextual. I mean, it's not really not rocket science to be honest, but right. to give you the full answer to that, um, it's really contextual. So essential amino acids are nice. If you've had, if you have a source of a complete source of protein before those amino acids will be in your bloodstream for hours. Right. So it's not, you're not going to, you're not going to run into that very specific situation unless maybe you, you're in the morning. You, if you're, and even then you get an increased protein synthesis. If you can have an intra-workout shake and then eat right afterwards, no big deal. You could probably yeah. wait an hour. It's not going to like, you're going to kill your gains. Right. But to idealize things, you want to have a complete protein source when you know you don't have an incoming source of complete protein in your diet before or afterwards. Because you don't want to, you don't want to stifle the protein synthesis by having a lack of those non-essentials because all you've given is essential amino acids. Imagine someone gets up at seven, they get ready to get out to the gym, they get to, they start to train at eight thirty. Essential amino acids go in, they're done at nine thirty, then they have, then they get dressed, whatever. It's eleven o'clock before they have any a full source of protein. They've just gone four or five hours without any of those non-essentials. They'll still be in the mix. Yeah, they're coming from the body protein. So you just set yourself back unnecessarily. So ideally, and here's the thing I was going to say before is you can go and check this out. I've looked at a couple of different places, but if you, if you break down the cost of like a whey isolate or a hydrolyzed whey, which is a great resource too, because it's already broken down. You, your digestive system isn't in full force when you're exercising. Those processes are antagonistic to one another right? Um, in terms of the autonomic nervous system. So, but if you look at essential amino acids versus a whey isolate, and you want to get, you know, the essential amino acids as a, a whole protein, the cost is about the same. Essential amino acids are maybe twice as expensive as the regular protein. And they're about half the content of the regular protein. Right. Like that. So it's not, it's not any cheaper to buy essential amino acids. And it's, it's not a bad not a bad choice, but I just assume put the whole protein in there. That's kind of what your system's set up to do. So as far as how much of these literally, like I said, six grams of essential amino acids will have a positive impact on protein synthesis. So small amounts are better than sort of nothing. It's kind of amazing that it's so little. Um, there's another study that looked on, looked at this idea that if you, you know, the, the, the timing, the window, and they gave a small amount of uh, calories, I think it was a protein carbohydrate mix, and it was like 40 calories versus nothing for like two hours. And, no, and just having those 40 calories was enough to prevent, um, to allow gains, whereas waiting two hours did not hmm. studying older folks. So it's just something is better than nothing, I think, right. better than being like being completely fasted. So like one end of the spectrum, you could just do six grams of essential amino acids. Then you could work your way up. What a lot of people find, this is a convenience lifestyle type of thing, is you make that intro basically one of your meals. Yeah. So you have, you know, 3,000 calories, six 500-calorie meals, and you want to make a 500-calorie meal out of your intro workout? Nope, no problem. You put 25, maybe 50 grams of protein in there, 25 to 50, the rest of the calories from carbs, you're good to go. There's an intro workout. Hydrolyzed. Protein works really well. It spares your body the need to do that. The high molecular weight carbohydrates work great. They, they're more easily assimilatable for most people. But you don't have to do that. Um, I've had people do just glucose and whey concentrate because that's yeah. all they can afford. And you get, you'll adapt. You will adapt to those things. There's even literature showing that now in endurance cyclists who take in carbohydrate when they drink. Their, their GI system upregulates the glucose transporters. 
that are there taking things out of the gut into the bloodstream. So you can get better at that, but I would not suggest, and I'll add this in just because I just put a post up on Instagram about glycerol using it as a pump ingredient. And yeah. people have been asking me incessantly about that. And I still have people, I put the numbers and everything there. You want to make sure you ease your way into these things. So some people I think went, went hog wild on the glycerol and they didn't drink enough water and it's renowned oh, for causing gastric distress, right? Like you wouldn't go right to like 20 grams of NCTs. Right. You know, you're, you're just asking for it. So everyone has variable ability to handle this intra-workout drinks. So I worked up to 2000 just to like say, it's possible. You can do that. It worked great in the 6,000 calorie diet where I was constantly feeling like I just wish I could not have to eat all the time. So that was perfect for me. Um, but that's not where anyone should start. I don't think I don't care if you're the largest man on the planet, I wouldn't start with a 2000 calorie intra, you know? <laughs> well, and the, the other question that I have for you too, and Jason, feel free to chime in here. Um, and we've talked about this in detail quite a bit though. Um, would you say for, for someone that's wanting to maximize their muscle growth, that they would benefit from having aminos and carbs during their training versus not and just having getting it from their meals pre and post and letting that float around in your system. What are your thoughts on that? I, there are there is a lot of research out there on nutrient timing, but as far as growth, as far as growth goes, is that something that you would hang your hat on and say yes, it, it helps? Mechanistically, the main thing is to have those nutrients available and to be eliciting that insulin response. That's the main sort of hormonal response we're getting. Insulin helps with things. So, and also that you have a depression of cortisol as well. You're trying to make that happen. Right. Um, some people don't handle the, the GI distress very well. So having, but they can eat a big meal like an hour and a half beforehand. It doesn't bother them. Right. You know, I prefer to have an empty stomach and have a massive, I'm doing like a 1200 or 1300 calorie intra nowadays. Not a problem. Cause I'm eating, I wake up and I have a small, like 50 gram protein meal and then I and then I go to my go to train and then I have that massive meal and meals thereafter that works great for me that's not an approach for very many people probably but what's in your so, intro right now if you don't mind me asking I'm, I'm putting I think I'm up to eight times 240 grams of highly branched cyclic dextrin mm -hmm. and 75 grams of of uh hydrolyzed whey and then a little creatine too okay. I think yeah we can do the calories on that it's a lot let's what's it yeah 300 and 15 times four. So yeah. 1200 and whatever, 60, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And no GI distress from the cyclic dextrin. Glycerol. I mean yeah. None, but I'm used to, I, I work my way up to that. I can't, I can't even, I get thirsty. Um, but that's just cause it's hot. I'm here in training in Florida. Right. You know, woe is me. It's terrible. You know? <laughs> so, so I know water, I know the amount of water people take in, helps with gastric emptying. So like I, yep. I usually recommend dextrose because it's cheap and people can get it cheap. But then I, I see a picture or they send me something and they've got these little half shakers. Females are notorious for it. And they've got 30 grams of dextrose in this little half shaker with eight yeah. ounces of water and it's just sitting in their fucking gut. Right, right. For you to take in that much, how much water are you drinking that helps to keep everything moving along and emptying? I have a big shaker. It's uh, I probably go through... It's close to, a, it's a gallon total with everything by the time I'm, I'm done at least. Yeah. 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 And I think people just don't realize that the higher your carbs get into workout, you've got to have water to help keep everything moving. They, they just don't get gastric, gastric emptying at all. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's really well studied. And I'll just a little factoid that's kind of a fun fact, but 
during endurance exercise for the purpose of thermoregulation and hydration, and then providing the carbohydrate, which ends up being, this, this is Eddie Coyle's research, really good shit. It ends up being a supplement for uh, glycogen potentially. So you don't bonk as early, like doing a marathon, that kind of yeah. thing. They found that about a six to 8% solution was ideal. At least when you're going just with glucose, you can throw some fructose in there and jack it up. That's some of the newest stuff that's come out, but right. that's six to 8%. So that's pretty dilute. Yeah. So you do the calc. I mean, if it, it, it's, it's different during resistance exercise, but someone's going to town like a woman who's doing kind of higher rep stuff with short rest intervals. So take, if, if she had 30 grams of in there, she'd need at least a half a liter uh, or 500 milliliters for sure to make a 6%. Am I doing that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So, um, you know, and more is more is not worse, but the 6% that actually is the concentration of Gatorade and Powerade's 33% more, which makes it 8%. Yeah. That's why they, that's why they have that on the, on the label. So, but a lot of water, and you think about how dilute those are, that gives you a rough gauge of what you might be shooting for during an extra, a continuous endurance exercise in the heat type of thing. If you're going after in the weight room, you're not standing around talking, you're, you're not in like a, you know, a really highly air conditioned big box gym. You're going to town, big movements. You're going to want something pretty dilute. So you want to be yeah. start drinking that early on and start getting it in there. So for some people, you can literally do like a meal before, a big meal during, and then you don't have to rush off to have anything to eat because you haven't eaten for a while. That food's still in your system. It's going to be yeah. there for a while and do that. And so I was doing that 2000 calories because what that was so nice just to have to do only four other meals. Yeah. It was really delightful for me at that point yeah. in time. Some people, when they're dieting down, let's say, might prefer to have as much real food as they possibly yeah. can and even have a real food meal right before they train. It, it could even have something that's a high glycemic index, kind of off diet, cheap food type of thing. Sure. You know, have like a little waist shake with um, maybe even some of your yummy fats in there that taste good, like chocolate fudge, you know, your favorite flavor. And you know, a rice cake or even a part of a pop tart or something like that, yeah. you know, wouldn't make that the mainstay of the diet. That would be like meal one through five, but right. that could be a pre-workout meal with the one caveat that you don't want to have a reactive hypoglycemia, which right. can happen. That used to have, I just mentioned this on another podcast. There was um, a lot of research where they were, they were testing out, you know, the, the ergogenic effects of uh, carbohydrate. So just thinking like, you know, how do we best administer this and have control over it and make it easy? They just give them like a big, like hundred gram bolus of carbs right before like a 45 minute endurance exercise bout. So you jack up the glucose, you jack up the insulin, then you start training, then you insulin sensitize because they're exercising so hard. You drive down the glucose, the insulin's getting delivered further driving down the glucose. Yeah. And these guys would get hypo by the end of the exercise yep. bout. So that can happen if you try to, if you don't meter out your, your intro workout. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I was going to say, Jason, you, you've really got yours dialed in. We've talked about it before, but I know we've got new listeners because they're going to hear they're coming from Scott kind of break your intro workout down because you've got the Gatorade and the leader of Gatorade down. Talk about what goes into your intro workout because you, the progress you've made with your physique over the years. I know this has been one of the staples um, break yours down for everybody. Okay. Um, so I'll just tell you exactly what I do from start to finish around workout. Um, I've always found that my body does really well with, with rice products in terms of pump and response and digestion. So, uh, pre-workout, uh, and I do well with beef too. So I'll have beef, um, cream of rice 
MCT oil, and then Intra. I really have played around with it all, and I like Gatorade. So I will go anywhere from two of those 36-gram Gatorades to three of them, even up to four of them on leg day. So I'm getting anywhere from 75 to 130 grams of carbs. Um, I also do EAAs, about 14 grams. I use our essential energy at New Ethics. Um, I'm using – so I got that with the carbs, and then I also do um, citrulline and L-arginine. Um, it's actually an, an injection formula. You inject it. Um, I take that about 1,000 milligrams of that pre-workout, hit that with some creatine in the, in the Gatorade. Um, I'll start about – I like to get about 30 or 40 grams in before I get to the gym, so I'll start drinking a, a one – and then I'll finish off to, you know, two more while I'm, while I'm training. Um, post-workout, I don't feel the need to down a shake right away. I go home and then I'll have a full meal, um, usually some, some whey isolate. And um, I, like some, I like some rice checks, a little crunch and some almond milk. Um, and then some, some MCT again in my, in my shake. And that's my intra and it's served me well. And if I want to gain, I'll up the amount. And if I want to cut, I drop it down, but I keep my intra while I'm cutting as well. I think you, if you're training intense, you can use it and, um, you know, still excellent to burn fat and things of that nature. I, I think some people who, who haven't mastered the, um, the intensity of training yet may want to pull that. Um, and I kind of gauge that in my clients based on where they're at and their, and their development of, of being a bodybuilder. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I've always had it of the mindset that your body's, your insulin sensitivity is the best around training and especially during training. So to me, um, <laughs> I, I'm with you, Jason, I leave it in there as well, especially during prep, as long as people are training hard enough. Um, that's just always been to me, it just makes sense. Why not have, I'd rather have someone that trains in the morning, do intra workout carbs then eat, you know, 50 carbs later in the day, eight hours after they've trained, their insulin system is better during training. Why not have it there? And I know there's a lot of coaches just hit your macros every day. You know, I call that, we call those macro coaches here on the show. They just don't give a fuck. They're just like, here, just hit your macros, eat whatever yeah, the fuck right. you want. There's no time being involved in it, yeah. Yeah, but it, it to me, that kind of makes sense. But um, Scott, is there anything else you want to talk about with intra-workout? If not, we're going to move on to some training stuff. Yeah, I'll just say like it, it's it's a matter of degree, and there's so many so many variables. Imagine if someone thinks that nutrient timing doesn't matter. Imagine if you just like literally got up in the morning and you trained, fasted, and you didn't eat anything, and you just waited till you know you did like a like a an intermittent fasting, but you did it totally bass backwards where you trained in the morning and you fasted, and then you just ate all your meals you know all at once, just met your macros, all saturated fat, ice cream, and whatever you wanted, all in one giant meal. Imagine how that would work. It wouldn't work well. You'd be a wreck. Yeah. So there's something to say for it. And it's just a matter of degree. And the individual, like, it's funny how those studies, some show that Cribben Hayes is one. Um, Darren Willoughby did a study. It was a really good study, actually, on Gatorade that was done by Tarpenning that came out in, like, around 2000, showing that the degree to which cortisol was reduced was directly related to the degree to which the muscle cells grew. Um, from just Gatorade, they're taking about 50 grams of Gatorade during the workout, no amino acids, none of that stuff. So you see variable results in the studies. You see variable responses all the time across studies of pretty much everything, but people just want to be a little more black and white with the nutrient timing thing. And I think 
not their fault, but Alan and Brad Schoenfeld did a protein timing, you know, post, post-workout or nutrient timing type of uh, meta-analysis. And the conclusion was that it didn't seem to make a difference, generally speaking, but there are still good examples of where it did. So um, I think there's something to say there, but for some people, they don't, won't matter. I'd encourage people who, who want to try it out, work their way up to a substantial interworkout, get going on that. And then assuming everything else is pretty much the same, pull it out and see how their workouts feel and see how they feel afterwards. Yeah. They're, they're, what better proof than that? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you're just using yourself and it's anecdote, but shit, some of the best anecdotes led to the best, some of the best research out there. So yeah. there, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, to me, that kind of, that sums my coaching up. I know um, in myself is I'll take a lot of this stuff and apply it and I'll try it one way and try it the other. And you can't argue with that. Like you can't argue with the differences that you feel. So, right. Yep. If it works, it works. The next question, um, if you're following along, check out page 272. So listen, we're all old fuckers here on the show. Scott, I'm going to get you to tell us how old you are here in a minute, but this is training related in age. Um, And you do a real good job of covering this in the book. Let's talk about training as you get older. And I'm, I'm going to older, I'm going to frame as 40 years old and, and older. Um, yeah. Training age is different because for our listeners, your training age is how long you've been training. So you might be 40 years old, but you just start training when you're 36. You're still, you're still young in your training age. Um, Scott, how old are you? Uh, like your actual age and then what's your training age? How long have you been training? Like seriously training to be a bodybuilder? I'm a half century old. Oh, so you did hit 50. I'm 50. Yeah. 50 awesome. Now, yeah. And I started training when I was 11. Damn. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of fun. I can come up with some pretty cool. Uh, I literally have only taken two times off once when I was backpacking around Europe for about a month. And then the other time I documented my fortitude training book where I, um, I overtrained like crazy and I just had to take the time off. I just utterly destroyed myself. So it's been continuous, like literally all the time training in the, in the weight room. Well, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about longevity, but I also want to talk about rep ranges and things of that nature. Mm. Um, let's talk about how the differences in the way people train when they get older. I know so many people and get your thoughts on this, that they've trained very, very heavy DC training, for example, is, is a great example, even though there was, you know, back in the day, some widow makers in there, but for the most part, it was pretty, pretty hard training on your joints, your CNS, nothing wrong with that. But I see people or people that like to power lift in the off season and they've, they still try and chase those fucking numbers when they get into their forties and fifties and they get injured. Have you changed your training style? Have you upped your rep ranges at all? What, what have you kind of learned as you've gotten older and your body said, Hey, Maybe you shouldn't do this or you should. What are your thoughts on that? It's funny because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm an absolute hypocrite that you're asking me this question now because I'm knowingly violating all sorts of things that I learned because I have an opportunity to train. I'm training with Derek Oslin, who's okay. eighth in the two twelve oh, yeah. Olympia. Yep. Yeah. So I'm trained or training at his gym and actually he talked with me and John Meadows about training and John actually had already started formulating a program for him. So I'm like, hey, let's do it. Something new and different. I've always told people do mountain dog training, do my training, do DC training. So here we do it. And I looked at, I'm like, that's way too much volume for me. I'm going to destroy myself. And I have pretty much, but it's forced me to eat. And so I'm violating some of the things I'm going to throw out that I sort of figured out. But um, the first, the first thing I think to think about is like for someone to consider why they, why they train and what they want out of it. And 
literally like is the training like for some people some days or just in general it's for mental health it's you know it's yeah. it's therapy they've just they've got some anger that they need to voice or they just they just the post-workout anxiolytic effect which is good now i kind of got my stress down i'm good to go so think about it from that that re regard first of all are you there because you need to do the exercise you need to do just something where you can kind of go bonkers do you have an actual performance goal in mind so where are you coming at it from? Yeah. M muscle gain really is, is I guess the way we yeah. can frame this. So if someone's right. trying to still put on muscle. That's a hard thing to do after the age of 40. Like if you got, if you're of a young training age, yes. But after, after 40, you've got a, a different scenario. So it can happen. But in that case, you, there's a whole other conversation that needs to be had. Um, this actual, this information originally came from an article that's on elite FTS. People are just going to read that called rust proofing the iron warrior and Dave Tate ask yeah. you to write it. So, so if you want to continue to gain muscle, you're going to have to recognize that overall in big picture that making muscular gains is a function of recovering relative to the training stimulus that you impose. So your recoverabilities are limited. So you have to be crafty with how you're creating the training stimulus and you can't do what you did when you were an unbreakable teenager or 20 something year old and just train like a maniac with, you know, lots of sloppy reps with super heavy weight necessarily, because you get in, you run into the limitations of your joints, as you, I think you noted, um, connected tissue just doesn't have the same protein synthetic rates yeah. that muscle tissue does. So that sort of sets you up over time as you get stronger and bigger, especially using heavier loads to, to tear muscles, just get micro tears and those sorts of things. Those do accumulate. So you got to be a little more crafty with how you go about creating the stimulus for overload. And you got to, and this is sort of where the balance comes. You got to train smart, but also train in the way that you love. Because if you start doing everything, you know, so calculated by the book, it's not fun anymore. Yeah. And and for me, I mean, and this is this is why I'm doing what I'm doing with Derek. We're just training like absolute idiots. We're like just we're just going <laughs> absolute fucking bonkers, and it's a blast. And I'm in. I got all everything sore. It's just ridiculous. Finally, we're having a deload next week. Um, so I got two more days that I hopefully will survive without, you know, tearing everything. So, but that's the fun thing is, is, is that that's the joy of it. So what I would typically want to see someone do if they're thinking about this is like figure out how you can work in those crazy fun sets that you maybe like to do alongside something. So, so the, it's kind of like, I don't, I'm just going to be an absolute idiot barbarian in the gym alongside smart, smart training which means auto-regulating what you're doing. So one day you might walk in and realize that, you know what, today's not going to be a day I'm going to barbell back squat. So you're auto-regulating the exercises you're doing. Today's going to be a day when I need to, I want to create a good, strong stimulus, but today's not a day where I'm going to have a three-hour workout. I need to get in, stimulate to the extent to which I can recover because I've, I have a recovery scale that I use with people, perceived recovery scale that's very, very helpful. You just know that today is not the day where I can, I can bang out set after set after set. Yeah. You know, so you need to sort of learn how to regulate your, your loading your, and your deloading periods. So periodize in a way that's smart and auto-regulate literally kind of everything that you're doing. So what I would typically do, John's programs are sort of set out. So we have sort of things written, set in stone, but what I do in fortitude training and what I suggest people do is don't, become completely married to any particular exercise or any particular workout you're going to do that particular day. That's how you'll get injured. When you go in and you start trying to do a behind the neck press, you know, with the barbell and you just, you feel like something's going to tear every single rep. 
even as you're working your way up, just skip it, find something else, invent a new exercise. And the thing that's nice about that is what you feel like maybe that's a cop out, but that's training smart. But what you're doing to some degree, especially if you're doing something you haven't done on a regular basis is you're creating novelty. And the whole thing, and this is the interesting thing, the way I see it, at least people talk about exercise variation and novelty of stimulus. Like, yeah, you know, that's, it's kind of nice, but progressive overload is really the name of the game. It's like, so why is progressive overload such a good way to stimulate muscle growth? Because when you move up in weight, you do something you've never done. It's because it's new, it's novel, it's different. That's the whole point. You go and you do like deadlifts from the floor for six weeks and all of a sudden you do a deficit deadlift or you do a rack dead with a little different loading curve, a little bit different biomechanics. You're doing kind of the same thing. It's either, well, that's still a deadlift. That shouldn't be any different. You can get sore as hell just because you change a little bit. Right. So finding using variety as more of a tool in choosing exercises that you can train hard on on that given day. And I chose a delt exercise as that example because that's what I'll have to do so often. I may go through three or four exercises until I find what I can do. Um, and so then I do that one. And almost always I can find something. I've just got, you know, I've been around long enough to sort of be able to weasel my way into finding some way to punish myself. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of creating novelty and a little different stimulus, let me, let me throw yeah. this next part out to you sure. is what are your thoughts on changing the rep ranges? Because a lot of people like to train in that, you know, 10 to 12, H12 rep range. If they've been training that way, as you get older, I know there's research out there. I know Brad Schoenfeld did and uh, did quite a bit. <clears throat> I've tested this on myself and clients. I know Jason, you, you have as well. Your thoughts on training in the higher rep ranges to failure versus heavier training as you get older. Do you think that's a, a good replacement for people to help protect joints, but still be able to try to eke out some muscle gain? A lot of people yeah. ask that question. They're afraid to train in the high rep ranges or quote unquote light. Right. I think they don't understand the, the research that's been done, but also training to failure. Can you go ahead and give your thoughts on that? Yeah. And that, that's the thing when, you, if you think of if someone's, if they're older and they're getting, they got reasonably stronger, you're you might be twice as strong as what you were when you started off. And that's kind of, because this is such a bizarre endeavor to, to literally pick things up and put them down. So you get specifically stronger. And then you do re these repetitive movements with what are kind of, you could call super physiological loads, right? The stresses on our joints are beyond what mother nature equipped us for. They're just, they're just little too, too much. So you're already producing tremendous loads. Even if you're training relatively light, you're doing something in the 20 rep range. And this is what the research shows as you already suggested is that you can, if you train light with a lighter load and just, leave too many reps in reserve, so to speak, don't train to failure, you're going to get a, a, a sub suboptimal result in terms of stimulating muscle growth. But if you take lighter loads, this is, they've even gone down as low as 30%, 30, 50%, something like a, usually it's about a 30 rep max in a lot of those studies, but 20 reps will do the, do the job as well, yeah. 20 to 30 and go to failure. There's nothing about doing a set like that. If it's truly to failure, that's easy. Right. Exactly. Those are brutal. And the thing is, I think, some to some degree and this may be some of the listeners may may fall into this category is people don't recognize what that really entails doing a higher upset like that to failure because no one does them and there's a reason for that because they're so hard so you take someone like watch someone do like a, a set of leg presses you know that are widowmaker style and you know you know widowmakers yeah. so widowmakers the idea is that if you were married 
and you do a set like this, it's so hard that it literally kills you and you make a widow out of your wife. That's sort of where the, where the term comes from. Yeah. And they're, they're the sets where someone looks at you and they're like, and this happened just the other day with Derek. I was doing something and he's like, I thought you were done like three times in that set. Because he, he followed the reps and he followed what seemed like the fatigue curve. And it's like, well, now he's done. Now he's done. That's when a normal person would have stopped. That's when a sane person would have stopped. What's wrong with him? He's out of his friggin' mind. Mm-hmm. How can he keep doing this? That's what a real set to failure looks like. But you never, like, if I go into a gym and I see someone doing that, the adrenaline just spikes like a motherfucker because this yeah. is where I want to be. This is Valhalla for me, right. you know? But you never see that. You really don't. So my whole point there is that people underestimate the value of those because they just never see them. And you do see someone do a set like that. And you're like, now imagine he does that with, you know, five, six plates on the leg press. And then you go to five and a half and seven and eight and nine. And next thing you know, they're, they're using 30% more. It's still just a 20 rep set, right? That's no right. problem. Yes. That they yeah. just increased. They've just progressively overloaded in that range. And they're using now what are really pretty heavy weights for higher reps. Seems like a misnomer, but this is the context where it sort of makes sense. <clears throat> Those are absolutely brutal. Those will produce muscle growth, especially for the legs. That's sort of an anecdotal finding. I think there's some research literature su- suggesting that as well. But Yeah. So, so doing those sorts of things, because the load is still going to be less, so it's easier on your joints, and that seems yeah. to be where you know, we get to most people. So and I the CNS, have, the, the, the yes. nervous system as well. Yeah, and that's the thing you can't do. You just can't go in there and bang out twenty sets of, you know, five sets of twenty reps to failure. Your nervous system will get whacked by those as well. One of the things, and I, this is a, an aspect of fortitude training. I'll, I'll try to keep it short, but it's those sets where you like you stop, you pause at the end, you do a discontinuous set. You get really close to failure, or maybe a couple reps shy, and you rest, and you do a couple more reps, and you rest. So you're accumulating effective reps. But there's a disproportionate taxation that comes in, in your nervous system when you get to those reps that are just shy of your failure rep. You get a huge advantage of those. Those, two, those last two reps, let's say, are, are, those are an equivalent to the previous five reps on a rep-by-rep basis. Those are very important reps, but you also whack your nervous system pretty badly. Yeah. So one of the things that I have it's in all the different set types and fortitude trainings, I have people do um, – continuous sets, even in the muscle rounds, which are discontinuous, the reps are continuous. So they don't pause. So if you're going to do a set of 15 or 20, you have to keep moving the entire time. Look, obviously, you adjust if you need to, if your feet need readjusting, what have you, grip needs to be set back in place. But if you, if you do that, you'll, it's, those are difficult as well to get used to because it's like walking off a cliff is the analogy I use. It's like you see it coming and you're like, everything's telling you you want to stop. And you start getting close to that failure up and we just keep on barreling at it. You, you'll want to stop. But what that will do is create those really, really dastardly difficult, but very effective reps and prevent you from grinding out those very close to failure reps that whack your nervous system too much. Yeah. So execute the sets in that standardized fashion. And it means less reps. Um, it's less shifting around and that kind of thing too. In some cases, like you're not trying to like, someone locks out their knees on a leg press or what have you. Um, so it's less time holding the load, but it's a standardized way to do reps to failure or close or one rep shy of failure, zero reps in reserve. And so you have a, a place for, for um, progressive overload to proceed from. So that's, I think a nice way to train as well, because the nervous system gets whacked 
you know, pretty badly during training to failure, but you can do that um, and still do some failure sets that are really, really productive without yeah. destroying your nervous system as much. I'm going to link your site here now, now that we're wrapping things up. Guys, everything's in the show notes. You have a link to Scott's book that we're actually covering today. Um, but your site should have everything on there, all your information on Fortitude Training, the whole nine yards. Is that right, Scott? Yep, absolutely. Yep. And I'll put all your social on here so people can get a hold of you, um, follow you along like you put out some really good content. Um, man, we're going to be down your way, your way soon. So, uh, yes. it's going to be, it's going to be next week. Those palm trees in the background of your, uh, of your screen there look great. Yeah. Uh, anything else that you want to say, man, before we, uh, shut this down? Thanks for having me on guys. This was great. Definitely. This was, uh, this was cool. Yeah. I'd love to come on again if you guys want to hear me ramble. Yeah, no, there, there's yeah. a lot of fun stuff that we can really talk about because your background too, as a researcher and you know, you've taught college before university at the university level, there's a lot of fun stuff that we can talk about. And I'd like to really save a lot of the real nerdy questions is, is so to speak like the stuff that that we can't ask a lot of normal guests because they just don't have the ability to answer those. Or what I like with you too, is you don't always just answer something. You, you like to provoke thought and that's always something that, you know, you like to make people think and sometimes even come to their own conclusions because sometimes there's not a set answer. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that I have written in my notes here of topics that I would love to have you back on for. So yeah, we'll just touch base with you and set it up again, man. So we really appreciate totally. it. Yeah, travel. Uh, you're coming from Missouri, right? Yep, I'm gonna drive down in my Tundra with a full of fat muscle supplements. We've got some adjacent stuff in there as well, and hit up some of my retail locations. Then I'm gonna meet up with some good people in the area: Bill Campbell, Will Grazione, uh, just quite a few people. Oh, right so yeah, I'm gonna make it a a nice nice week trip. So, are you picking up Jason on the way, or are you, are you just are you flying down, Jason? I'm flying down. Okay. Um, and uh, getting in on Thursday, a little early, so I can make a little trip out of it. Right on. Well, well, be careful. Last time I drove down from St. Louis, you're probably not going through St. Louis, I'm guessing. Probably going to go south of there. No, I actually am. I'm going to go up to St. Oh. Louis for the weekend and then go south from there. So well, I went. I came down to Mount Vernon. That's probably how you'll go, I'm guessing. Yep. Um, and that's where I spend 16 days when my truck broke down. So, oh, shit. Uh, Don't yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so hold your breath, man. Like, no. Yeah. I was in an RV park. If you look on my Instagram, people can go there. There's like a series of probably 15 or 20 different posts of me doing stuff with bands and picking up logs and all sorts of shit in the, yeah. in the field behind the RV park at the beginning of COVID. So, yeah. yeah. Good times. Well, guys, stay tuned too, because we also have the Physique Summit coming up and all three of us here on the show today will be a part of that. We're just looking for a date that we can make it happen. So might be a lot of virtual stuff, but we will get that together. Cliff and I have a call this week, so it's going to be a good time. So for myself, Scott and Jason, we're out of here. Thanks guys. Yeah. Thanks, gentlemen.